Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So that's how John um, comments. It was a commentary, an exposition of what Jesus has just said to Nicodemus. Like I said, last week we, we began looking at this astonishing offer of God's salvation from judgment through his son. So John sort of steps back and says, okay, so, so, so how is it that the son of man would, would come? Why is it the son of man would come and be, and be lifted up? And he tells us in John 3.16 that it is the result of God's unexplainable love. Ultimately, the son did not come of his own accord. He was sent. He was given by the father. And the only reason for that is what? Is love. Free, unconstrained love. And John is astonished. He begins with the word so. God so loved. He didn't just love. He so loved the world. That's the only explanation. But John isn't finished. He gives us one more cause for God's astonishing offer. It's not only because of God's amazing love, it's also the result of God's astonishing purpose of salvation, in verses 17 to 18. His astounding purpose of salvation. So John 3.16 is just spoken about God's gift of the Son, right? God so loved the world that he did what? He gave the Son. Well, now John 3.17 says, speaks about the mission of the Son, so God, John 3.16, he gave. John 3.17, he sent. You see that? God sent his son. And throughout John, we're going to learn that Jesus is the one who has been sent by the Father. Being sent means, implies, that he has a mission to accomplish. He's been sent to carry out the purposes, the will of the Father. And this is the exact point John is making here. So just as the Son is the gift from the Father, so also the Son has been sent to carry out the purposes of the Father. So just stepping back, just think sort of the panorama of Scripture. Anything that God does, he does ultimately because he purposes to do it. That's um, the only reason. God is unconstrained. He's never forced. He does what he does because he chooses to do it. His love is unconstrained. That's what we saw in John 3.16. And now we see that his purposes are unconstrained. And really, the entirety of salvation history has been carried along by these two things. The free, unconstrained love of God and the free, unconstrained purposes of God. And we get both of those here. John is saying, you want an explanation for why the Son of Man came into the world. John 3.16, God's free love in John 3.17, God's free purpose. That's the only reason. And John gives us both of those. And so John is astonished. And he begins here 
verse 17 by describing this astounding purpose of God by telling us the mission of the Son's first advent. It was salvation from judgment. Look at verse 17 again. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You say, Michael, where is the astonishment? I mean, I saw astonishment in John 3.16. God so loved the world. Where's the astonishment in this verse? Well, I would say it's in how John begins the verse. Look what he says. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, as though that would have been the logical response of God, right? We would expect God to do that. God did not send his son. I mean, if God is going to send his kingly representative, his son, into a world that is at rebellion against him, then certainly that means judgment, right? I mean, it goes something like this. If the United States sent B-12 bombers to fly over Germany in World War II, well, it was certainly for the purpose of dropping bombs on them, right? Why else would God send his son into the world? Why else would we send B-12 bombers over Germany? This is exactly the way the Jews would have thought about it. They anticipated the coming of Messiah would bring judgment on God's enemies, the, the, the world, the Gentiles, and he would bring salvation for the Jews. But part of the problem with that is that, according to the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus, the Jews, too, belong to the world. And they, too, are under the righteous judgment of God. But the Jews were half right. One day, God will indeed judge his enemies, and it will be through his son. Look over at chapter 5. Chapter 5, 27. <clears throat> Chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus is speaking here. And he says that he, that is the Father, has given him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment, bring about God's judgment and condemnation. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is God's representative, and he's God's agent to bring God's judgment to pass. So the Jews were, were, were half right. That is the mission of the Son of Man. But surprisingly, God sends his Son not first as a judging warrior-like Son of Man, but as a suffering Son of Man for the sins of the world. Jews included. And this purpose of God is astonishing. As you're reading the Old Testament, we can now, looking back, we see there's two comings of the Messiah, but it wasn't entirely clear from the beginning for the, for the Jews that there would be two comings of the Messiah. When you read the prophets, it seems that his, his, his work of judgment, his work of salvation are, are simultaneous. It's like they, they overlap. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't tell there would be two comings. And so John tells us here um, that this is surprising, this is astonishing. God sent his Messiah first to provide a way of salvation before sending him to execute judgment. And if he did it, not even the Jews would be saved. This was his, his plan. And the amazing thing is not only did he send him to provide salvation, he sent him to take the judgment upon himself. Look what it says. The world would be saved through him. And I put a number of texts there in your outline. You can look up which emphasize that very thing. Well, before we moving on, John describes this purpose a little bit more, uh, not only by the mission of the Son, 
but by the division of the world by the Son's coming. Look at verse 18 now. Not only is the mission of the Son shocking and surprising, but also the division that comes. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. His coming has drawn a dividing line through all humanity. From now on, everyone will be judged based upon how they respond to the Son. It's no longer Jew versus Gentiles. It is those who believe the Son versus those who do not believe the Son. Right down humanity. So look at verse 18. We get two things. The first thing we get is a promise to believers. The one who believes in him is not condemned. It's the glorious promise of the gospel. And I know it's a familiar truth, but let it sink in the freeness and the richness of this promise. Whoever believes in him, the John 3, 14 to 15 kind of faith, remember? Not just a general, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but the kind of de dependent expectation, like Israel looked to the serpent in the wilderness, that kind of faith, whoever believes in him in that way, is not condemned, is not judged, although you rightly deserve it. It's glorious truth. And that this, this same truth is echoed all through the gospel. Chapter 5, 24, 6, 40, 11, 25, 20, 31. But verse 18 concludes also with a pronouncement to unbelievers. They're already condemned. Look what it says. The one who does not believe is condemned already. Those who do not believe the Son are already condemned. Well, why? Well, John tells us. Look at the rest of the verse. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So John gives us two reasons here. Why is the world already condemned if they don't believe in the Son? Well, number one, they're already condemned owing to their original condition. Because they're part of the world, this rebellious world that is in opposition to God. They're already condemned. Look at the very end of John 3, 3.36. Very similar statement. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what? Remains on him. And since these people have not believed in the only remedy for their problem, they've not receive the only remedy that can fix this problem of God's wrath, they remain under his judgment. But there's another reason John gives us. It's not only owing to their original condition, but now their guilt is heightened because they've rejected none other than the Son of God. Look what it says. He has not believed in what? In the only Son of God. Where have we seen that word? The Greek is his monogamous. Remember? John 3.16. He's not believed in the one and only Son of God that God has put forward at great cost to himself in love to the world. That is high-handed rebellion. D.A. Carson said, in need, already in need of a Savior before God's Son comes on his saving mission, this person compounds his or her guilt by not believing in the name of that Son. So that's the first astonishing feature that John gives us of God's plan. It's God's offer of salvation from judgment. And it's astonishing because it's the result of God's unexplainable love. And it's the result of God's astonishing purpose. And within this purpose, it divides humanity right down the middle. 
<clears throat> Let's go on now to the second astonishing feature um, in, this, in this plan. It's the astonishing rejection of God's Son results in greater judgment. Verses 19 to 21. So now we have the backdrop of God's amazing love and God's amazing purpose. And with this backdrop now, man's rejection of God, man's rejection of the Son is put on display as all the more evil and all the more heinous um, to us. It's when we get God and all that he's done in proper focus that the depravity of man is exposed in all of its darkest colors. And that's what John is doing for us. He's just painted this portrait of the magnificent will and plan of God, and now he puts man's rejection, shows how deep and evil and how worthy of judgment it really is. So John wants us to be astonished at the depths of man's depravity, that he would choose darkness over light, that he would choose death over life, that he would choose the love of sin over the love of God. Amazing. So in this section here, John wants to highlight the evils and dangers of unbelief, warn us against unbelief, show us why unbelief is so dangerous and evil, and he wants to show us the fundamental reasons for why people respond to Christ in the way they do. That's what John is after now in the remaining, remaining verses. So first, in verse 19, we get Christ's saving mission inevitably brings judgment along with it. Let's read verse 19. It inevitably brings judgment with it. Verse 19 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the judgment. So God did not send his son for the purpose of executing his judgment on the world. That is true. And yet there will still be a judgment. And not only will there be a judgment, but the point of this verse is that the verdict is already being passed upon people as they respond to the Son. John says this is the judgment. In order to help us conclude, um, not conclude, that God's done away with judgment altogether, there's still judgment. In fact, John's purpose here is to teach us in a very real sense, Christ's coming has brought judgment. Christ's coming has been, in a sense, for the purpose of judgment. And John will show us this in three ways. And this judgment is inescapable. It's, it's inseparable from his saving mission. As he comes to save, he also comes inevitably to judge. Well, how does he do that? Look on your outline. There's three ways. The first, Christ's coming brings the judgment of exposing man's condition. His coming brings the judgment of exposing man's condition. While in one sense Christ has not come to judge the world, to carry out God's condemnation on it, in another sense he has come for the purpose of judgment, a judgment of exposing the world, what the world's true character is, and vindicating God's judgment on it. Hold your hand here. Go to John chapter 9. This is a verse that... Some people think is a contradiction to what we just read. God didn't send his son to judge the world. Well, Jesus says something sounds sort of contradictory. But I don't think it is, and I think John's talking about the same thing. John 9, verse 39. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. 
Jesus said, John 9, 39, for judgment I came into the world. <laughs> I thought John said he didn't come for judgment. Here he says, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. I think Jesus' point here is the same that John is making in our passage. Jesus' coming to provide salvation from judgment would also inevitably bring judgment in another sense. Yes, it's true, he didn't come to execute God's judgment, but he came to bring another kind of judgment. Well, what kind? The kind that exposes the condition of man. Notice these verses in verses 19 to 21 in our passage. We get these, these words like light versus darkness, love versus hate, come versus do not come. All these words highlight the function of Christ's coming. Jesus has come to put the world on trial. He's not on trial. He's come to put the world on trial. He's come as light into darkness, not only to give life to those in darkness, but also to expose how much the world loves darkness. That's the purpose of his coming. So what does light symbolize? Right? Jesus is light. What does that mean? I think it means two things. It, it symbolizes the revelation of God to man, the revealing of God to man, and it represents the moral purity, the holiness of God. And therefore, what does darkness represent? Darkness represents the ignorance of God, and it represents moral impurity. Jesus is the light. As God made flesh, he perfectly reveals the character and person of, of God. And he's come into a world that not only is ignorant of God and characterized by sin, but a world that loves sin. Look at the verse again, verse 19. He's come as light into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than light. Light exposes. That's what light does. It exposes not only what is in darkness, but this verse tells us it exposes those who love darkness. Now, have you ever flipped a light on in your basement and in your garage only to be surprised that there are cockroaches all over the floor? Probably you have. What happened? The light exposed them. You didn't see them. You didn't know they were there, but you turned the light on and there's cockroaches on my floor, right? But the light didn't only expose the roaches and all their disgustingness. It also exposed what the roaches love, right? As soon as you click the light on, what happens? They take off. They run. They go hide. Why? Because they love the darkness. They love staying hidden. I don't know why, but they, they, they just do. And that's the same point here. That's what happens when Christ comes. He reveals God. He reveals God's absolute purity. And as man flees away in unbelief, he exposes what he truly loves. And it is not God. It is ignorance of God. It is moral impurity. So as light comes to the world, he exposes the love of the world. D.A. Carson said, Mankind preferred to live without such knowledge of God, without such brilliant purity. So that's the judgment that Jesus brings in exposing of man's condition. But Christ's judgment also brings the judgment of escalating man's guilt. People are not only exposed as lovers of sin, 
rather than lovers of God, but now their guilt is heightened. They're not only guilty of rejecting God's law in the Old Covenant, or even just general revelation, they are guilty of rejecting God's ultimate display of love, his son. Look at the instance in this verse. What, what does it say? People loved. That is the second time in this whole gospel John has used the word love. The first time was to describe God's great love to this wicked world. And how does the world respond? They loved. Same word, the darkness, rather than the light. It's amazing. God shows love to the world, and the world responds by rejecting God's Love. It's the ultimate form of unrequited love. In the face of God's love, the world rejects both God and his demonstration of love, his one and only son. And so it escalates its guilt. The world is now more guilty than before. <clears throat> Number three, Christ also brings the judgment of eliminating man's excuse. Mankind has no one to blame except himself. According to this verse, the reason why people do not respond to the light is not because Jesus is not the light. It's not because he doesn't reveal the character of God. It is not because he's not the ultimate display of God's love. Man responds the way he does precisely because Jesus is all these things. People reject Christ and the salvation he offers. They expose their sinful condition They're just like Nicodemus. Why do they reject it? It's because their deeds were evil. They don't want to admit their guilt. They don't want to turn and repent from their guilt. They're self-righteous like Nicodemus, or they're committed to their lifestyle of sin or whatever form it is. John says mankind loved darkness and not the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. There's nothing wrong with the light. It's their fault. Their deeds were evil and they loved it. And so they're self-condemned and without excuse. So John wants us to be astonished at the rejection of God's Son by the world. It, it is absolutely astonishing. Verse 16, the point was that the love of God will go even this far in saving the world. And the point now in verse 19 is that the depravity of man and his love affair with sin will go even this far in rejecting the most brilliant display of the love of God. It's absolutely amazing. Christ came to save the world from judgment, and yet this very judgment would bring a judgment. This very coming would bring judgment along with it. So he said at the beginning of this section here in verses 17 to 21 that John wants to highlight two things. And he's just highlighted the evils and the dangers of unbelief. And now he wants to conclude by highlighting for us the fundamental reason why people respond the way they do. So what is behind these responses of belief and unbelief? That's what John wants to do. He wants to pull the curtain back and, and, and show us the core. Just as Christ's saving mission inevitably brings judgment with it, so also Christ's saving mission inescapably elicits two responses from the world. Verses 20 through 21. Think back to Psalm 19.6. Remember, it's the psalm about begins about creation in the first half, and it talks about the sun. What does it say about the sun? Remember, it says there's nothing that is hidden from its heat. 
right? Nothing that's hidden. The sun comes up and it's inescapable to be affected in one way or another by the sun. In the same way, once Christ comes into the world, no one can go unaffected. No one can go untouched. No one can remain neutral. Man is forced to decision with Christ. He cannot escape responding one way or another. And John now is going to teach us what's behind each of those responses. So look in verse 20. First we get the response of unbelief. Verse 20 of John 3. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. <clears throat> this verse is very similar to verse 19, but John is unpacking that a little bit more for us now. So look, look what's going on here. It begins by telling us the heart condition of those who reject Jesus. The heart condition. John says that at root... The root cause of those who do not come to faith in Christ is that they have lives that literally practice worthlessness, wickedness. Again, it might not look like blatant evil. It might look like Nicodemus, squeaky clean on the outside, but devoted to his self-righteousness, his pride, his God-belittling, and his life. But either way, the root cause is the same. John here, notice, he's not simply speaking of one class of people that do not respond to the light, who do not come to Christ, those who practice sin. Okay, so he's not saying that this is just one of several reasons why people don't come to the light, people don't come to Christ. He's not saying that some people do wicked things and so they don't come to light, and other people don't come to light for other reasons. That's not what he's saying here. What is he saying? He is saying, he's showing us what is driving and what is behind any and all unbelief. Any and all unbelief comes down to this, John says. Those who do not come to Christ reveal they have lives that are devoted to sin. That's the root cause, John says, of all unbelief. But there's more, if that wasn't enough. It also stems from a heart that hates Christ. Look at verse 19. I'm verse 20. They do wicked things, and they hate the light and do not come to the light. In verse 19, John says that they simply love darkness, and uh, they love darkness and not the light, but here he leaves no wiggle room. Those who love darkness, who refuse to repent and believe in Christ, hate Christ. That's very strong terminology, and if you tell that to the average unbeliever out there, they're probably going to be pretty shocked that you would say such a thing. I don't hate Christ. I just don't think he's the only way of salvation. I just think uh, I can't know for sure. I, I, I just whatever excuses they, they give. But John here is giving us inspired x-ray vision into the hearts of mankind. Those who do not believe are haters of God and haters of Christ. Well, Why? Why do they hate Christ so much? John gives us the answer, the purpose of those who reject Jesus. Look what it says. Lest or so that their works would not be exposed. So they wouldn't be brought to light. They do not come to Christ. They hate Christ because they don't want to part with their life that practices worthlessness. Christ's person and his words expose them. 
They show what they really are. It's an assault on their, on their pride, and rather than humbling himself, man would rather not respond to the light. And you say, well, Michael, that's, that's illogical. I mean, the only reason God would expose you is so that you would run to him in dependence and confession of your sin, right? But sin is illogical. That's the, that's the point of depravity. It's illogical. Man would rather not be exposed than to receive God's salvation. He'd rather not be exposed and endure eternal damnation. So perhaps following, let's talk about verses 16 and 18, God so loved the world, and you're thinking, well, how in the world would anybody reject so great a salvation as this? I mean, God's astounding love. But now, following verses 19 to 20 and man's depravity, you're probably wondering, how in the world would anybody respond rightly to Christ? Would anybody come in faith to the Son? And that is where John ends in verse 21. He gives us the ultimate explanation and reason for any response of true faith. This is it. This is the ultimate reason. And this verse unfolds the same way as verse 20 did. Let's read it. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now notice, this, word, this verse is very similar, same pattern as verse 20, and that's important to see, okay? It's a very difficult verse, actually, so let's, but, but I think it's very clear once we, once we see the connection. It begins also by giving us the heart condition of those who come to Jesus, okay? But it's not an exact parallel. So an exact parallel would be those who practice wickedness versus who? Those who practice righteousness. Those who hate the light versus those who love the light. That's not what John gives us. He gives us something different. The heart condition that John gives us here is those who do the truth. Now, what in the world does that mean? Those who do the truth. A person who does the truth is a person who lives their life in conformity with the truth, with God's word. It's literally he lives faithfully. It's not only to believe the truth, but it is to obey it, to live in light of it. It's a heart-level commitment to God's truth that you live out practically in your day-to-day -day life. So this is the first thing to note. This is their heart condition, practicing the truth. And it's this heart condition that lies behind their response to Christ. Okay? So practicing the truth cannot mean the same thing as believing Jesus, or else the sentence wouldn't make any sense. It would be, those who believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. That doesn't make any sense, right? So this is a heart condition that's behind a positive response to Christ. Okay? Now, what about, um, before we get there, um, the question now, is where do these people come from? So this is a heart condition that that is behind, that, that, that results in a positive response to Christ. So where do these people come from? These people who do the truth. That's the million dollar question. Does this mean that this is a certain class of people who are not so depraved as, as others? Or does this mean that before we come to Christ, we have to fix ourselves up a little bit, make sure we're first doers of the truth, and then we can come to Christ? And I think the answer is obviously no. But John's going to give us the, the answer to these questions in the very next line. So 
Look at how he finishes the verse. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So now think the parallels now. Those in verse 20 who responded to the light in unbelief did so because their works, their, their lifestyle of evil, would not be exposed. Okay? Now in verse 21, those who respond in faith to light do so in order that their works, well, what works? Their life of practicing the truth, doing the truth, would be revealed, would be exposed. Okay? Now, the question is, what about those works is being revealed? How, what do you mean this lifestyle is being exposed? What about it? Look what John says. That it may be clearly seen his works, where is his works? His, his life of doing the truth will be revealed that they've been done in God. They've been carried out in God. In other words, this is not a special class of people. This is not a special class of not so depraved people. Rather, their life of doing the truth is the doing of God. Their heart commitment to God and his truth and his ways is the result of God's work in them. Any response to Christ in faith is in order to manifest and magnify the work of God. So you can put it this way. Anyone who rejects Christ have only themselves to blame. And anyone who accepts Christ has only God to credit. They can take no credit for it at all. So let me give you an example. Think back to Nathaniel in John chapter 1. Okay, so one of the first disciples, Jesus comes, he's proclaimed by John the Baptist, and the disciples come to him. They believe. And what does Jesus say about Nathaniel? Here comes Nathaniel, and he says, You're the Messiah, you're the King of Israel. What does Jesus say to him? He said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite, truly an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, Nathaniel comes to Christ because of his heart condition, who practices the truth. He was one of the very few faithful Israelites um, in the time. He had a heart that loved God, that truly submitted to the Old Testament, that truly believed the Old Testament scriptures. And when Christ comes on the scene, what happens? He responds in faith. And we get the flip side with Nicodemus. He was squeaky clean on the outside. He looked like a lover of the Old Testament and a lover of God and a lover of God's truth. And as soon as Christ comes on the scene, what happens? No thank you um, to these words. Jesus is going to say the same thing in chapter 5, that those who truly trust and practice the Old Testament scriptures will believe in Christ. And he says, but if you do not believe in me, it's clear you didn't even believe in Moses. You don't truly believe the scriptures. So that's how it worked for people in between the Old and New Testament, like Nathaniel. They're, they're true believers in God. They, they practice the truth. They have lives, hearts changed to trust, love, submit to God. And so Jesus comes on the scene. They believe in him. But how does it work for us who are not in between Old and New Testaments? Well, there's no such thing as a person who practices the truth now who's not also a believer in Christ. So our point is not that there are people out there who are practicing the truth in some sense, who are just genuinely seeking God, who are not believers in Christ. That's not our point. That doesn't happen today. But rather, the main point of the passage is the same. And so get this. 
What is the main point of this, of this verse? The main point is the fundamental reason lying behind any work of faith in a person's heart is the work of God. God did this. Look what it says, that his works have been carried out in God. This hard attitude was the work of, of God. It's a person who does the truth. So why did you believe in Christ? It's because you had a heart that did the truth. Well, where did that come from? It was the work of God. It willingly aligns itself with God's truth. It acknowledges its guilt. It renounces its sin. It depends on God's provision. It's a change of heart that came from God. That's the fundamental reason behind any positive response to Christ. Natural people, those in darkness, do not and cannot do that. Impossible. And so when we come to Christ, we do so in order to magnify the great grace of God. Any faith we have is owing to him, not us. It's not because we're a superior class of people. It's not because we've chosen the light because of our own willpower. It was God's doing that enabled our doing. It was God's working that enabled our coming. It was God's grace that enabled our faith. John Piper put it this way in closing. Unbelief is our fault, and belief is God's gift. Which means that if we do not come to Christ, but instead perish, we magnify God's justice. And if we do, not, and if we do come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify God's grace. In fact, Jesus says that is why we come, that it may be clearly seen that our works have been carried out in God. Believers love when God's free grace is clearly seen. That's John. Um, chapter 3 is, is glorious, and it heightens the judgment for unbelief. And it gives massive hope for unbelievers that are in our life. There, it's not too late. There's hope because God can still do this, and he might still do this. Pray. Pray, pray. Any hope they're going to have to trust Christ is going to be if God does the work in their heart. And for you, believer, magnify the grace of God. This is why you've come. God did it. And he is so, so gracious. Any questions, comments on this, on this verse? On these verses? Yes. I was just going to say, I think it's really encouraging and kind of reinforces the fact that there's two categories. There's, there's sheep and there are goats. You know, there's no carnal Christian category. There's no lukewarmness. It's, it's literally black and white. You're either believing and trusting in Christ or you're a God-hater. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a sharp contrast. It really is. It really is. Yeah, there's no wiggle room. And, uh, so let these truths sink in. Man, there were motivation for evangelism. <laughs> so many good truths here to share with unbelievers, not to shove down their throats, but help them see the, the, the reality of their condition. They're not neutral. They're, they're not genuinely seeking God. They are opposed to him. The call is repent, to believe. But also magnify the grace of God. Any other questions, comments? Yeah, Mike. The, yes. Uh, uh, it's so great how the epistles take up on this thing, mm. especially the condemnation mm. and how the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, yeah. on, there is therefore now no condemnation for right. those who are in Christ Jesus. And, uh, that whole theme through the epistles and taken from the gospel and, and, and Jesus' words. Yep. Yep. It's beautiful. Yeah, you see it in Paul, you see it in John, like 1 John, a lot of these themes are, are repeated just 
the condemnation. You have a, a high priest. He's a propitiation. He's standing at the right hand of God. Um, and yet, still a judgment. Um, and it's already begun, is, is what John's told us. So. Good. All right, let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. It's clarity. And we confess that in ourselves we're darkness, haters of God, lovers of sin. Thank you that you did not just send your son as your gift of love to the world, so that wasn't enough, but you also did a work in each of our hearts to create a heart by your spirit that loves, desires, knows, submits to the truth. That's the only reason we've believed in Christ. Lord, we thank you. It's a gift. You could have left us on our own, and we would perish, and you would be righteous. You're so merciful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bless um, each of these this morning. Teach us as we go to the service to come. We praise you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray.